0: One idea we're going to see tonight is the idea of making choices. And who here is like me that you hate making choices sometimes? You hate to decide on things? Yeah, I, I feel you. Um, you know, we live in an age that's like, you know, you can spend the hour or two hours you were going to spend watching Netflix just choosing something to watch on Netflix. You go an hour, you're like, I've spent a whole hour trying to decide what show to watch, and now I'm tired of going to bed, and I've spent an hour of my life looking through things. You know, we're inundated with choices, you know, even for you guys in the season of life we're in right now. You know, you're in a day with choices about what your career is going to be, you know, even coming here, what school you're going to go to, you know, maybe who you're going to date and hopefully marry, even just going to the store and like what jar of peanut butter you're going to choose. That's also a hard choice these days, which is 2019. We're all allergic to peanuts now, right? So they don't sell peanut butter. I'm kidding. I love peanut butter. But, uh, you know, like we're, we're just overwhelmed with choices. But one thing we're going to see tonight in the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus begins to close his sermon found in Matthew 5 through 7 is he's not going to give us a lot of choices when it comes to following him. And uh, so we're going to see tonight is really this idea of a radical choice that we have in following Christ. And really, it's really one of two choices. And we're going to see that. So, But to kind of um, recap us real quick, real quick on, on the sermon, we've kind of seen three specific things in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time overviewing it again. But we've seen three things. First off, or really, but even before that, the Sermon on the Mount is about what? It's about the life of a disciple, right? We've kind of reiterated that. It's a description of those who follow Christ, those who follow Jesus, seek to be identified with him, seek to live the way he guides us to live in the world. But with that, we've seen three things about the sermon. We see, number one, that the standard for being a disciple is impossibly high. On its own, right? We've probably seen this over and over again in the way that Jesus describes the life of discipleship. Is that he tells us we should be more righteous than even the most religious people of his day, the Pharisees. He tells us literally that we should be perfect, right? That we should be complete just as our Father in heaven is, is perfect, is complete. So we see on our own this standard of being a disciple he's described is impossibly high. But second thing we see is that Jesus himself has fulfilled that standard for us. Just like he said he came to fulfill the law. Really in that, Jesus has perfectly lived out in in his life, death, and resurrection uh, the the guiding principles of the Sermon on the Mount. So we see if we want to enter into this life of discipleship. The first thing we have to do is not seek to just follow the Sermon on the Mount like a bunch of rules, but we have to uh, engage in a relationship with the King himself, with King Jesus. And we have to surrender our lives to him and believe what he's already done for us to enter into this. And then thirdly, because of that, once we see that we're disciples not by works but by grace, we get turned back to the Sermon. To see it as a guiding principle. is really Jesus laying out what we've said is a life of flourishing. It's the good life. you know. It may seem upside down. It may seem inside out. And that's kind of the point. But really it's the good life. It's a life of flourishing. And it's God's design for us. So we've kind of seen all these things. And we'll talk more about that next week. But tonight we're going to see Jesus give us really two choices. A radical decision when it comes to following him. When it comes to entering into the kingdom and becoming a true disciple of Jesus, okay? And we're going to see that in verses 13 through 23 as Jesus begins to transition. Because last time we were in this, we looked at the golden rule and this idea of relationships and community. Now that Jesus is transitioning to his conclusion and giving us a choice. And so we're going to say three things tonight about true discipleship and what it is. And then we're going to unpack Some of that. So, three things I want to show you tonight from these texts about what true discipleship is. It's costly, it's evident, and it's personal. All right, that's your three-word outline, kind of. It's costly, it's evident, it's personal. That's all on your sheet for you. I gave you some notes. Um, I gave you some room to write a few more things down because I have more stuff for you than uh, than I gave you on notes. Okay, but that's what we're going to look at tonight. So, let's do this. Let's read verses thirteen through fourteen of um, Matthew seven, and then I want to pray for us. And then we'll start to walk through this. Okay? All right, verses 13 and 14 in Matthew 7, Jesus says this He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it or enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge of your word and how it's very clear um, with us about what it means to follow you. About the decision we have in following Christ. Uh, Lord, I pray as we wrestle with some some very hard and challenging texts tonight. That you would uh, give us all grace that your spirit would would work in our hearts. um, That you would use me as a broken vessel to communicate your timeless message. but that you would uh, work in a way that gives glory to Jesus and draws us closer to him, whether we already have entered into a relationship with, with him or not. That tonight may be even the night that you open eyes to see their need for Christ and, and draw them in. Christ. Amen. Okay, so before we even begin to dive into this text specifically, I think we got to see one big thing that Jesus is saying here. Um, that's really important and kind of undergirds everything else in this message and in this text it's this, is that Jesus is telling us when it comes to the kingdom of God, which we talked about a lot on Sunday mornings, but when it comes to the kingdom of God and entering in, we only have two choices, all right? We enter in or we don't. We either enter into this gate or we don't. And so what he's already telling us here is this, is that there's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus, all right? There's no middle ground that we can have with him. Either we're forgiven of our sins. We're headed to eternal life on this road. Or we stand guilty of our sins and we're headed toward destruction. All right, we see that in this text here. And this is the hard thing. We're going to go ahead and start hard because the whole message is going to be kind of tough. Um, but what Jesus is telling us here is this. And he's reminding us of a truth. Is that we all, every person in this room, every person who's ever existed, will stand before God one day. And we'll have to give an account of their life. They ought to give an account of how they responded to Christ, how they not responded to the gospel of Christ. And they'll stand and be judged by God on their response to the gospel. And so there's this decision that we have to make already we see here. And Jesus made it very clear in the Bible overall, makes it very clear that if we don't respond to the gospel of Christ, it, well, we all respond. But if we don't receive it, if we don't enter into this kingdom, then when we die, we won't be based on the gospel of grace, but we'll be based on our works will be based in, and judged on our sin. We'll be judged by the things that we've done against God. And it, the scriptures say that even our righteousness, even our good works are like filthy rags compared to God. That on our own, apart from the gospel saving us, every person will spend forever separated from God in hell. Or they'll be punished forever because of their sin. All right. And that's a hard thing. I get hell is a, is a heavy topic. Believe me, it weighs on me a lot just like it weighs on you. Um, but Jesus is being very clear with us. That if we don't respond to Christ in saving faith and put our trust in him, then we will be judged forever, right? So we need to take this teaching seriously because Jesus spent a lot of time talking about health. Um, he was very depictive in it. We're not going to spend a whole message talking about that. But we see he was very clear about helping not somewhere that we want to be it, involving God's wrath and poured out on us in judgment. And we had to take that teaching very seriously. To where, even if we lived a whole life, 70, 80, 90 years of pleasure in this world, that that can't compare at all to billions of years of being cut off from any grace of God, but only experiencing the judgment and the punishment of God. And the scary thing in these verses is that it's not even so much we're talking about, you know, just people who are, you know, living crazy lives of debauchery, but in these verses, we've got to remember that the Pharisees were very much enlightened in these verses. And he's saying here that even people who claim to be Christians, Who people who are very religious can be revealed to be fakes as well and experience the same judgment. And we'll talk more about that. But the thing we want to look at tonight is this this is some very serious stuff, ratlining. And Jesus is kind of drawing a line in the sand for us about this this decision to follow follow him. And you guys know me. I'm not a fire and brimstone preacher. okay? So this is not going to be me yelling at us about this. But we got to wrestle with these texts um, and be honest about what they say. So the first thing we see is Jesus is telling us we have two choices when it comes to following him. All right? But look at those verses with me for a second in verses 13 and 14 and look at this first analogy of what he tells us for this. He tells us we have two choices in following him. Number one, we either are with the many, the crowds uh, that are on the easy and wide path that leads to destruction, or we're with the few that are on the hard and narrow path that leads to life. And I want to pull three things out of that for us to see in these verses tonight, okay? The first one's really quick. Um, It's simple, but it's hard, okay? But number one, Jesus is telling us this, all right? He's telling us that we can only be saved from eternal destruction, from life separated from God. We only can be saved through the gospel of Jesus, all right? There, There is no other way to eternal life, there's no other religion that can save us, there's no other system. That can save us. Save us. There aren't multiple paths to God. Right? It's not like God's on the mountain and we all can find our way up. But no, God has come down from the mountain to us in the form of Christ to save us from our sins. Right? But there aren't multiple paths to him. And the only way we receive eternal life is through repenting and believing in the gospel. All right? Now, I get that that raises a lot of questions for many of you about a lot of things. I get that. I've talked to many of you about that. But for the sake of time tonight, I'm going to kind of move on. Not that those questions don't matter, and I'd love to talk to you more about that if that raises many questions. Um, But for the sake of time, we're going to kind of move on from from that and move on to the second thing. Okay? Second uh, is we see this, is that the way to eternal destruction is easy. And it doesn't cost us anything, right? And this is kind of, it kind of makes sense, because think about the way sin works in our lives, right? Because of our sinful nature, um, sin comes naturally to us, doesn't it? You can look at kids, like kids are cute, right? But they become little tyrants really quickly. And so like sin comes natural to us. All the kindergarten workers are like, amen, right? You know, Um, they hear it, you know. But um, it comes naturally. We don't have to work hard to sin, right? It comes very natural for us to rebel. And that's the easy road that we see here. And walking down this easy path really doesn't cost us much at all. All it requires to walk down the easy path is to really just follow your heart, you know, as many people would tell you, which is terrible advice. Don't follow your heart. Jeremiah says your heart is deceitful above all things. It's corrupt and wicked. Don't follow your heart. Your heart will lead you to sin. <laughs> all right, it will lead you down the easy path to destruction. Don't follow your heart. Follow Jesus. Okay, so he's already telling us this, but before the good religious folks in the room start pointing fingers, we have to remember, like I said, the Pharisees are in light of this the whole time. So Jesus isn't just saying that the narrow path is a life full of debauchery, sleeping around, partying every weekend, selling meth to third graders in your backyard, things like that. Like it's it's not just this terrible life that we we think of, you know, but the the wide path can also be a life of hypocrisy. It can be a life of self-righteousness it can be a life of judge, judgment and judgmentalism against people it can be a very religious life right but a life that builds itself up builds itself up not in christ but in religion and in works right because compared to actually following jesus religion's pretty easy you know it's just about kind of playing a game and pretending and building yourself up based on a system and not a savior and, and not a relationship with God. And Jesus warns us that that kind of relating to God is fake. And it leads to destruction. So we see that. And then thirdly, we see this. We see that truly following Jesus is hard. And it puts, a, it puts us at odds with the rest of the world. Because Jesus tells us right here that, that being on the right path. He's really honest about this, by the way. He says that being on the right path is going to mean that life is going to be hard. It's a, it's a hard path. You know, We're going to be in the minority Uh, We're going to have to give up things in order to follow him. So many verses we could bring up from the Gospels in this, but I'll give you one. If you want to jot it down, it's Matthew 16, 24. Um, I'm trying to keep it all within Matthew tonight for sake of consistency. Not all of it, but a lot of it. But Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says this. He tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his what? His cross, right? And follow me. So Jesus was very clear in his ministry that following him required that we die to ourselves, that we imitate him in taking up, maybe not literally, maybe for some people, yes, but taking up an instrument of crucifixion, of torture, of death, and following after him by laying down our lives, by denying ourselves, right? That doesn't mean that all of us are going to be martyrs for the faith, right? But it does mean that every Christian has to die to themselves to, to say no to sin. To say no to what comes easy, to say no to what seems good, feels good, may be the easy thing to do, and to follow Jesus. And also it means that Christians are countercultural in the way that we follow Christ. You know, because many times we have to go against the flow of what culture may say is right, what campus culture may say is right, and instead follow the word of God. And you guys get this. You're on campuses every day. You understand this. You've, you've seen this in your own lives, how it sometimes can feel like you're in the minority. You're on this narrow path following Christ when so many around you are just kind of going on this way. It seems easy. seems fun. But really, Jesus tells us it leads to destruction. And you hear that, and many people kind of hear this kind of teaching. You know, Man, that's like old, old fogey, you know, fire and brimstone kind of stuff. You know, first off, Jesus says this, so if you want to call Jesus an old fogey, have at it. But um, but they hear that and they say, okay, this seems really restrictive. This is no fun. This is lame. This is boring, you know. Well, the gospel's not lame or boring, but I'll be honest Christianity is kind of restrictive, if you want to say that. In many ways, it is, it is kind of restrictive, but. It's also restrictive to say that if you own a boat, you only can drive that boat on water and not land, right? Like no one's saying, it's so restrictive, I can't drive my jet ski on ground, on land, right? Because what's going to happen? You can go anywhere, right? It's going to mess up your jet ski and you're going to have a broken jet ski. But we can say that's restrictive. But we can, in the same way, we can say the gospel is restrictive only in the fact that God knows what's good for us. He knows the way he's designed us and what leads to our flourishing. And so he restricts us into good pastures and good boundaries for our good and for his glory, right? And as we step out of those things, it may seem good for a bit, but it leads to our ultimate destruction. And we can apply that to so many things. So if we want to call that restrictive, we can. But in the end, the gospel and in surrendering to Christ, it really leads to so much more freedom in life than you could ever imagine in anything else. Right? It may seem restrictive, but really in surrender, we find way more freedom than we ever could imagine. Alright So that's the first thing we see about discipleship The second thing we see Is that it's evident First it's costly Second it's evident Alright keep reading with me um, Look at verse 15 Go 15 through 20 Jesus says Beware of false prophets Who come to you in sheep's clothing But are inwardly ravenous wolves You will recognize them by their fruits Are grapes gather from thorn bushes Or figs from thistles So every healthy tree bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So the second thing we need to see is this, that Jesus warns us about false teachers and false prophets. And um, it's kind of has a – not a side note, but as the first thing to see here. we got to notice that Jesus tells us that there, there are indeed false prophets we got to watch out for. Um, he says that, that these people—they seem like sheep, right? But indeed, they're they're ravenous wolves. They they may seem like they're part of God's flock, but really they're wolves seeking to devour people. I think that can be intentional. I think it can be unintentional. I don't I don't think you know just false prophets always know they're being super deceptive, but but they are. Um, you know, these people—they claim to be Christians, right? They claim to be pastors, to be fro- to be prophets, but Jesus says they're not real. Uh, they're, they're fake, you know. And I would say today there's a lot of false prophets um, in, in the world. Today that we have to watch out for. There's lots of people who claim to be Christian leaders and, and claim to have all these things to say that are actually, whether they know it or not, uh, are leading people astray. And the sad thing is when they're deceived that they are leading people astray. So I think for us, it's important to remember in these verses uh, that we got to be really careful about the things that we have uh, that we let have influence in our lives, like the, the teachers that we listen to, the pastors, the sermons. Um, you know, the books we read, the podcasts we listen to. I'm not saying that we have to be like foil hat conspiracy theorists where we you know, never listen to anything that we're afraid may disagree with our theology. But I do think we need to be discerning and really understand that there there are lots of people out there committing messages that really go against the gospel and, and that twists the gospel. So I want to give you three things to think about when discerning if some message you're hearing is, is kind of… Kind of iffy. Maybe it's a false prophet. Maybe it's some false teaching. I'm going to give you three. These are really simple questions, but three things to think about when you're trying to discern is a teaching worth listening to or should you be you know, more discerning about it? Okay. Number one is this. I said they're easy questions. Number one, do they, do they teach the Bible? <laughs> all right. And I don't mean do they just use a couple of verses to like justify some stuff. I can give you lots of verses and twist them and make them sound like they say something completely different, right? I could twist it all day long if I wanted to, right? I got enough seminary degree to be dangerous with that. Um, But the point is Do they use the Bible teaching And do they interpret the Bible with the Bible Do they give you you one verse And then base the whole 45 minute sermon on this one verse Or do they use scripture to interpret scripture And do they balance it out That you see scripture undergirds everything that they're teaching Alright Or are they driven more by popular culture By popular opinion Maybe just their own opinion Their own apostolic authority As a teacher of God's word Is it more about them Or is it more about God's authority in his word Alright so, do they teach the Bible? Number two, do they preach the gospel? All right? Do they, all, do they actually talk about needing to repent from your sin and believe in Jesus? They don't have to use the, the word repent, but do they talk about then the need to, uh, to surrender your life to Jesus, to look to the saving work of Christ? Do they talk about sin? Do they talk about the hard things like judgment? You know? Or are they always just talking about how God you know, wants you to be happy, to be successful? You know, that God wants you to be influential and have maybe a bunch of supernatural power and authority, but they never talk about the gospel that brings that authority. You know? right, is there a balance there? Do they preach the gospel? All right? Or do they preach some popular feel-good theology? A lot of really poor things being taught out there these days that we've got to watch out for. Do they preach the gospel? Number three, uh, do they actually live what they preach. This one's harder because you can't really tell like if the dude preaching on YouTube is like legit in his actual life with his wife at home. but as much as we can tell, do these people actually live out what they believe and, and live out what they proclaim you know And not only in the teacher, but what's the fruit that we see in the people that follow their teaching? Do we see bad fruit, things that just seem way out of step with the Bible, out of step with the gospel that's being produced by these teachers? Does it mean that they're perfect? I mean, please don't think that, you know, I'm in any way kind of perfect. Y'all know me well enough. My, my wife can attest I'm very much not that way. Um, you know, like, it doesn't mean they're perfect in any way, but do we see good fruit in their life from their preaching and teaching? All right? Or do we see something else? Okay? So, with that, if we see those things, if those raise red flags for something that you're reading, that you're listening to, something like that, I'm not saying that you're going to be a tenfold hat conspiracy theorist, right? But you need to be, need to be discerning. You need to ask, what kind of influence am I letting this have in my life? And maybe what I'd be better off spending it listening and reading something else. Okay? If you have questions for that, please ask me. Like, I love to talk about that kind of stuff. I'd love to help you. Um, if you come across something, you're like, Kyle, is this legit? You know, I'd love to help you out. Okay? I don't promise to be the end-all be-all of that but we can learn together. Okay? And that's good to know. But the second thing we want to see in this besides just false prophets is I think this idea of fruit really, it, it's more than just about false prophets in, in these verses. But I think really what Jesus is kind of showing us here is this, is that really if someone is a disciple, if we're a disciple, then we're going to bear fruit as well as evidence, all right? Um, because if you look at the way he talks about this, he uses fruit as a way to, um, for us to see and prove or disprove that these people are false prophets or not. And we see this idea of like true believers producing fruit all over the Bible. I'll give you three examples, okay? Um, I won't, there's lots we can look at, but three examples. You I may mean, want to jot him down. Matthew 3.8, very beginning of Matthew. Um, John the Baptist, when he begins his ministry, he tells the Pharisees to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Because they're coming and they want to be baptized in, in the name of his message that's preparing for the Messiah. But he's like, no, if you're going to get baptized, you need to keep fruit in, um, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You need to have evidence that shows you really believe. All right, don't just come and get baptized and get wet and think you're good with God. All right? So that's the first one. Matthew 13.23. Jesus tells a parable. You've probably heard it before, but the parable of the seed that was scattered. You remember that? There's different types of ground that received the the seed. And Jesus says that the seed that's sown in good soil, it grows. The seed takes root, it grows, and it produces fruit. And then later on when he explains it, he says that this good soil represents someone who really believes in the gospel and produces fruit according to their life. And then Galatians 5, kind of stepping out of Matthew, one more We'll look at this next week in Sunday school or table groups. Um, But Galatians 5, Paul really compares two things. He compares the works of the flesh. We can also kind of call that the fruit of the flesh. But the works of the flesh, he compares that with um, the fruit of the spirit. You probably heard before. And the works of the flesh, he says, are things like this. Things like sexual immorality, idolatry, jealousy, anger, envy, drunkenness. That's not all of them, but that's ones that we would relate with. And he contrasts those works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control, right? Against such things, there is no law. You BBS kids just sing the BBS song in your head, right? But we get that, right? These are the fruits, the results of being in good soul, of knowing Jesus. So those fruits are evidence for us that we really know Jesus, okay? But don't hear me say that that means that our works in any way save us. All right, I'm not, we've talked about that tons. The truth of the gospel is that there's nothing you ever could do, no amount of good you could ever do to make God love you more, to make God accept you more. In Christ, there's no amount of sin you could ever do to lose his love and to lose that security. The point of the gospel is that it's Christ's righteousness alone applied to us. We're saved by grace through faith alone, Christ alone, to God's glory alone, right? In no way is it about our obedience, but that doesn't mean that if we really meet Jesus, there shouldn't be evidence in our life. And that's what Jesus is talking about here, that once we put our faith in Jesus, once we begin that process, we take that first step in repenting and believing, we should see change in our lives. Right? We should see us begin to line up more with God's will, because if we've really been saved and the Holy Spiritually really come into our lives, it makes zero sense for us not to look any differently than before. Um, I think about, like, my relationship with Haley, my wife, like, you know, which everybody's looking at her now. Sorry, Haley. You know, but I love Haley. She's amazing, okay? Aw, so sweet. But the thing is, no one has to convince me and force me to do stuff for her and be sweet to her and care for her and want to serve her because I love her. She's my wife, right? We have a relationship, right? We're married, okay? No one's forcing me to do that. It's a fruit of our love for each other and our marriage that we want to serve each other in that way, right? It would be weird if someone had to, like, convince me to always do stuff for her, right? Because that's kind of weird. Like, is you, you like your wife, you know? Yes, also you have to choose to love each other. You have to choose every day each other. But there's fruit, and and because of our relationship, there's love that's there that makes sense. And it's the same thing for us in our relationship with God, right? Um, It's not a perfect analogy, but our relationship should lead to fruit, and it should lead to love. And I think really two main kinds of fruit we could look at. That help us kind of see that we've been changed Or this. Um, it's love for God and love for people. Which kind of makes sense if you consider the golden rule. You consider the law and the prophets. How Jesus says that the law and prophets are summed up. And love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. But I think two great evidences. Two great fruits, if you will. Of being changed by Christ. Is that we love God and we love people. Right? If we've met Jesus. I think we should love the things that God loves. When I became a Christian back when I was a teenager, that's the first thing I noticed. I definitely didn't become perfect. I was still a snot nosed punk teenager, right? Um, but I began to realize that even though I would grown up in church, I suddenly began to really care about the Bible. I began to care about church. I began to like want to know what God's word said. I began to want to obey him in a way that I hadn't, I hadn't experienced before. Like before that it was just kind of like something I went to a religion that I did. But suddenly it became like real to me in a way. And I would say that's that's what it means to begin to love God. You love the things that God loves. You want to spend time with him. You're brokenhearted when you sin. Doesn't mean that you don't sin, right? Doesn't mean we don't struggle with that. But sin bothers us, right? Our consciences can be dulled, but sin does bother us. And we want to spend time with God's people. We have a love for God, a love for his things. And also we have a love for people in general. Because if we've been saved by God and loved by God in that way, then I think it's natural for us to want to love others, to serve them, right? Uh, To be patient and forgiving with them, to want to serve the least of these, as Colby talked about a couple of weeks ago. To want to help people in need because Christ has met us in our need, our ultimate need, right? I think it makes sense for us to want to, to do these things, right? And so this fruit then is evidence that we've been made a good tree by Jesus. The fruit doesn't save us, but it can help us have assurance and really glorify God and seeing what he's done in our lives. Okay, But there's one more thing I want – or two more things I want to notice and point out before we move on to the last one for tonight. is number one, this doesn't mean that Christians don't sin. Right? Don't see the whole like a good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit, and that means that Christians only bear good fruit. And that means that Christians don't sin, therefore if you sin, you're somehow like – not a Christian. all right? That's called sinless perfection. It's bad theology. okay? Because the whole Bible is very clear that that's not the way this works. Until Christ comes back again, we're not perfect uh, in terms of our practical righteousness. Right? The, the book of Romans, Paul makes it very clear that he struggled with sin. And that dude was way more holy and righteous than any of us. And so if he did, we will too. Um, but the thing is, Christians, we're not freed from the presence of sin in our lives. But we are freed from the power of sin in our lives. Um, I've heard it said before that, you know, for Christians, the phone will still ring, but we don't have to answer. That temptation still comes. We still experience that struggle with sin, but we don't have – we're not enslaved to sin anymore. It doesn't have this power and dominion over us in the same way. But you may say, Kyle, well, what if I still want to sin? What if I still struggle with desiring to sin sometimes? Well, welcome to the club. So do I. As part of even wrestling with the sinful nature still. But the fact that if you want to fight back against that sin nature, if you want to want God, if you want to not want the things that, um, that God hates, if you see this struggle even within your own heart, this, this, as Paul would say, a war waging in your soul against holiness and sin, that's great evidence that the Spirit has come in and began to do some work in your life. Right? It's not about even, not even wanting sin. But it's about seeing this, um, this fruit growing. Because think about like a, a fruit tree in general. Like apples, like apple trees don't have to work hard to produce apples, right? Like apple tree doesn't produce oranges. You've heard that before. The apple trees naturally produce apples, right? Trees naturally produce fruit. It kind of happens. So Jesus is saying really for us, in the same way, if we know him, we're naturally going to gravitate over time to lives of holiness, lives of goodness, lives that, that look more like Jesus. And we don't have to fake it. Yes, it requires discipline, but we don't have to fake it. And when it comes to that discipline, this doesn't mean we don't have a responsibility. Because think about a tree. Like if if I take a tree and put it in this room with no water, no sunlight, and just leave it here, what's going to happen? It's going to die, right? It's not going to go very well for that thing. But if I take a tree, I plant it, and I put it in like a good spot where it gets lots of sun. I make sure it gets lots of water. What's going to happen? It's going to grow. If it's a fruit tree, it's going to, what, produce fruit, right? And so in the same way, our spiritual disciplines, things like, you know, breathe the Bible, prayer. Time with God's people, things like that, fasting, all that kind of stuff. They're not ends in and of themselves, but really they're the same thing as taking water and putting it on a tree. It's giving it a tree good sunlight. There are ways that God helps us produce more fruit right, and glorify him more. right? There are ways that we work alongside God in producing this fruit. Not that the work save us, but that we get to come alongside what God is doing in our lives and produce this fruit. And it's for our good in the end. That's the first thing. It doesn't mean we don't sin. Second thing is this, fruit takes time to grow as well. Right? Fruit is not instantaneous. I'm not much of a farmer, but I have like been around a farm a couple of times and like you don't plant a tree and the next day like there's a street everywhere. Like it takes time for it to grow. And it has to be cultivated over time. And so in our lives, it's the same thing. We have to look at the trajectory, the long term of our lives, um, and, and see the evidence of change in us. Okay, We can't just focus on the immediate. There's so much in our evangelical culture today that wants to focus on you know, making a profession of faith and making a decision for Jesus. And that's great. I'm not against that at all. That's awesome. But I think we've got to be really careful with that. Because it's really easy for anybody to pray a prayer, to make a decision, right, to make a profession of faith. But there not really be any fruit in that they haven't really met Jesus. They just made a decision. They were maybe pressured into something or, or who knows what, you know. Because Jesus didn't call people to be deciders for him. He called them to be disciples, right? Not deciders, but disciples. And so if we really are following Christ, we're going to see evidence over time. So we've got to look at our lives and look at the, the trajectory to really see some of this stuff. Not that we are like fruit inspectors and we're always freaking out in our own lives and other people's lives. But that we just see this stuff naturally over time, all right? But in our lives, if we look at our lives and and don't see fruit, we don't see evidence of a change in our lives, then Jesus speaks to us and says, we need to look at our hearts. We need to examine ourselves and ask some hard questions about, do we really know Jesus? I'm not trying to project doubt on anybody, but Jesus wants us to ask these hard questions and look and see, is our belief, is our profession, is it valid? Or, Or do we not have anything to back it up at all? Okay? That's number two. Number three, true discipleship is personal. All right? Personal. Okay, verses 21 to 23. Jesus kind of carries on from the last idea and says this. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, that being the judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I'll be honest. For me, these are the scariest verses in the Bible. These keep me up at night sometimes. They bother me a whole lot because I was raised in church. I know a lot of good church people. And these things really scare me. But what we see in these verses is this. Jesus is saying that just because you make a profession of faith that you claim Jesus is Lord doesn't mean that you really know him. Doesn't mean that you are going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But that people one day will be exposed as fake Christians. As they stand before God in judgment. And and notice a couple of things about this. Uh, There's really three things that both true and fake believers both have in common. All right, true and fake believers both have this in common. Number one, they have the right theology. All right, notice they they called them Lord. They called Jesus Lord. They they had the right theology. Uh, They're passionate, right? They said, Lord, Lord. In in Jewish times, to say someone's name twice was a, a demonstration of passion, enthusiasm. They're passionate. Uh, and they're active in ministry. And I not even just like, you know, serving in kids' ministry, which is awesome. But they're like casting out demons, right? They're they're prophesying, you know, they're performing miracles, which I, kids' ministry is awesome, by the way. I didn't mean to like compare those two. Actually, it's probably better in the long run, as we'll see. Um, but like, but they're doing all these great, you know, activities in ministry, right? But yet, those are things that both true and fake believers have in common. And Tim Keller, in a sermon he preached on this verse, he said this. He said, the absence of those traits demonstrates you're not a Christian. If you don't have the right theology, if there's like no passion, I don't mean emotion, but there's no like any sense of commitment or devotion to Jesus, and you don't have any sense to desire or desire to serve him in ministry at all, probably means you're not a Christian. All right? If none of that stuff's present, probably not a Christian, all right? But the absence of those traits demonstrates you're not a Christian, but the presence of them doesn't mean you're a Christian either. All right? The absence means you're not a Christian, but the presence doesn't guarantee that you are either. So what Jesus is saying is this, it's very possible to look like a Christian on the outside, but not actually be one. He says we can believe the right things about God, we can feel feel a lot of emotions about God, we can serve in the church, we can teach in Sunday school, we can have verses memorized, and not actually know Jesus. He says we can, we can pray a prayer, we can walk an aisle we can get baptized, we can go to church every Sunday. We can even be a leader in the church, which scares me, right? And we can still stand before Jesus and one day hear him say, I never knew you. Get away from me. Depart. And that's a scary thing. And, and we've got to see, like, there's a challenge and a comfort in these verses. But first off, we've got to look at the challenge. And so look at what makes the difference. What's the deciding factor between being a true disciple, a true professor, and a fake professor? Jesus says this. He says the only difference is that um, it's only those who do the will of the Father who enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? It's only those who do the will of the Father who enter the kingdom. But also notice this. Is that how he says he never knew these people and they're workers of lawlessness. Which is a quote from Psalm 6. Which is basically quoting someone saying that you're, you're my enemy. Get away from me. So they're even his enemies. right? So there's this connection then between being known by Jesus... And having some some relationship with him and being someone who who does God's will, between knowing him and doing his will, opposed to disobeying him and being a worker of lawlessness. So really what this ends up looking like is really what we just talked about, right? It's the connection between our faith and our obedience, our faith and our fruit and our works. Like we said, our obedience in no way saves us. But our obedience to God's will, our obedience to the will of the Father, which is revealed to us in Scripture, specifically, specifically through Christ, our obedience gives evidence that we know Jesus. We talked about this a lot in the book of Hebrews last semester, but our obedience doesn't save us, but it gives evidence of our salvation. And so what Jesus is telling us is this is that we can't rest our salvation on a one-time decision for Jesus. He didn't call us to be deciders but disciples. All right? We can't rest our faith on something like that or even an emotional experience, but we have to rest our faith in Christ and in a relationship with Him. Just, just saying Lord, Lord doesn't mean anything, in and by, of it's, anything by itself. right? Because look at the attitude of these false believers. This, this begins to move us into some deeper things here. Uh, but the attitude of these believers, like, it shows what they really cared about and shows their hearts. It exposes their hearts. Because notice how they try to prove that they're the real deal. Right? What do they present before Jesus? They present their works, right? They're like, no, but Jesus, look, we, we cast out demons, right? We, we heal people in your name. We, we do all these miracles. And all those things are very public things, right? There's no doubt people who knew these people probably thought that they were the most religious people, the most spiritual people around because they looked really good. These people probably knew lots of great quotes from pastors. They probably could quote lots of lyrics from the newest worship songs. They probably posted Bible verses on Instagram all the time. you know. But in the end… It seems like these people cared way more about a system of religion than a relationship with Jesus. You know, they cared more about what people thought about them, about, about people's perspective of them than God's perspective of them. They, they pursued you know, religious attention and spiritual acclaim in public. They didn't seek Jesus in private. They didn't seek him. You know, like Jesus said, go into um, your prayer closet and seek the Father. They didn't do that because they were just all about the public attention of people. And in the end, they're cast away from Jesus. Because in the end, they didn't really want Jesus anyway. They wanted people's attention. They wanted the acclaim. They maybe wanted to get out of hell, but they sure didn't want God. Right? They, they didn't want Jesus. So we've got to hear this warning that we can't rely on just a profession of faith, just words that we say. We can't rely on just on religious obedience religious works to save us. But instead, we have to look to Jesus. And we have to rest our full hope on him. And this is where I want to kind of begin to close this out with this, because um, there are some encouragement in the midst of the challenge of these verses. Because here's the thing. If we look to Jesus and cast all of our hope on him, we don't have to have any fear that he will cast us away. If we look to him and put all of our hope in him, he won't cast us away. Because for me, part of my story is I struggled for a long time with what you would call assurance of salvation. I got baptized once when I was eight. I got baptized again when I was 13. I had a serious doubting season when I was 18, 19 as a freshman. And I've had other times of struggle with that. Like, I've I've wrestled with uh, this stuff for a long time. And verses like this terrified me because I'm like, well, how do I really know I know Jesus? Like, was I sincere enough in my prayer? Like, do I really have enough works? You know, does my fruit really show enough? Like, do I have enough fruit? All this kind of stuff. And I got so worked up about that. And honestly, that's not what God wants for us at all. He wants us to have assurance. He doesn't want us to, to wrestle and be struggling in doubt. And one thing that I, that I came to that really began to help me with this, especially beginning of my college career, college season, was this. Uh, is that it's not the size of our faith that we need to use to determine our salvation. Our, our salvation is not about the size of our faith, but it's about where we place our faith. Right? It's not about the size of our faith, but it's about where we place our faith. Because if we put our faith in a decision that we made, right, well, that's just some words, right? You know, we're called to be disciples, not deciders. But if we put our faith in a feeling, well, emotions can come and go. Emotions aren't bad. They can be used by God to show us something's going on. But emotions are not ultimate. Right? Feelings are not ultimate in and of themselves. Right, but instead, we have to have our faith grounded in the fact that Christ has died in our place and we have surrendered lives to him. That we have put everything we have and cast all of our hope in him. Because think about the way Jesus describes a disciple in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. What does he say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So we see from Jesus that if we become poor in spirit… If we recognize we got nothing, no amount of good works, no amount of casting any demons out, any crazy stuff like that is ever going to earn us salvation. If we're poor in spirit and we're broken before him, recognizing our sin, our need for him. If we mourn our brokenness, if we're honest with him about our need. If we've humbled ourselves before Jesus, if we hunger and thirst to know him, there's no way he's going to cast us away. There's no way he's going to say, I never knew you. Because we're the very people he said will enter and receive the kingdom of heaven. Right? We're those very people. But we have to put our hope fully in Jesus and in knowing him and in relation with him and not in anything else. And I'm reminded of a, of a great hymn um, that, that I love, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, as uh, a great verse that, that I think echoes this idea. It's this, "Is that, nothing in my hand I, I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And if we have that kind of faith where we say that nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to the cross I cling, I've got nothing to contribute to this but my sin, and all I can do is submit myself and surrender myself to the, the mercy of Christ and His work for me, that's the kind of faith that saves. And that's the kind of faith that will, that will lead to fruit, that we don't have to stress about, well, did I mean enough? You know, did I, was I sincere enough? You know, do I see enough fruit? No. But if we simply pursue Christ, if we rest in the gospel, if we make that our mantra that nothing we bring to him except clinging to the cross, that the cross is our only hope of righteousness, if that's our heart's cry, our heart's desire, then God will take care of the rest. That we don't have to you know, stress and be these fruit inspectors that are always wrestling with, well, you know, do I have assurance? Because God will take care of the rest. right? And that's the confidence that we can have. Um, but maybe for some people tonight as we begin to wrap up Maybe that's not true you know, Maybe through this time tonight or even recently You begin to realize that you don't really know Jesus You maybe know religion You maybe are good at playing the religion game I did that for a long time Maybe you know, you're know you not in that at all But you realize that you don't know Christ You've been staking your faith, staking your salvation Your rightness with God On something else On a prayer you pray to BDS You know on a baptism that you, you had uh, done a long time ago, but you recognize there's no fruit in your life, there's no evidence, there's been no trajectory that you've been changed by Christ? Well, I want to ask you tonight. You know, maybe tonight Jesus is calling you to, to really know him, uh, to begin that process and take that first step of putting your faith in him. You know? And maybe you can open up to that and allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life. And if you want to you talk more about that, I'd love to talk to you about that uh, after we're done tonight. Um, but all you have to do, like we already kind of said... To receive Jesus and know him is really to admit your brokenness, to be poor in spirit, to admit your sin and your need for him, to surrender your life to Christ and to believe in what he's done for you. That way you rest in the gospel and his work for you. Paul tells us in Romans ten nine that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All right, if we confess and we believe in the gospel, we will be saved. Right? And there's assurance in that. Okay. So I'm not trying to throw any doubt in people's minds tonight unless the Lord's throwing it in your, in your mind, and then it needs to be there. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, um, so let's wrestle with this stuff. Um, and if you'd like to talk more about it, um, I'll be around over near the sound booth thing. Um, even if you want to talk during discussion time, but if you want to talk afterward tonight, um, I'll be here as well.